Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello. Thank you, as always, for your company today. Something a little bit different in store for you over the next few weeks. I'm going to take you on a journey through some of my back episodes to feature a few of my very favourite guests. So a slightly different format because I've chosen only the best part of these interviews. It's a compilation really to showcase these terrific talents. After that, though, we'll be back with the regular format of A Breath of Fresh Air. I really hope you enjoy this little circuit breaker. It gives me the chance to catch my breath and line up a whole lot of your requests. So who will you hear from today? The legendary shock rocker Alice Cooper, the average white band's Roger Ball, as well as Talking Heads drummer Chris France. We'll also check in with Grammy award-winning composer and lyricist Paul Williams. But first, let's head to my all-time number one, one-hit wonder. The artist is Norman Greenbaum. The song, you guessed it, Spirit in the Sky. Orthodox Jewish household in Massachusetts, with a bluesy riff and a clear Christian theme featuring lyrics about befriending Jesus, it did little to endear him to his family. Well, that's absolutely true. But I, I had an affinity towards music, and I got a guitar when I was in junior high and taught myself to play. I liked writing lyrics, and uh, I was sort of goofy because I grew up with a lot of, there were a lot of goofy records back then. So that kind of stayed in the back of my mind and I started writing songs. And I had been working on the music for Spirit in the Sky quite a long time. And so I had the music, didn't quite know what to do with it. I used to uh, watch the Porter Wagoner show and he was a very famous uh, country singer. But in fact, he was the one that discovered Dolly Parton. And he always did Uh, a gospel song about halfway through his show. And, you know, where my mind is, I'm going, I've never done that. Maybe I could do that. He's doing good with it. So I sat down, I wrote lyrics. You know, you got to have a friend in Jesus. And it, it had nothing to do with my religious background. At that point, I'm writing songs. And my take on that was, if you're a songwriter, you can write about anything. Did you know at the time that the music, that the licks that you did have were so special? Did you have a feeling about how good they were before you put the lyrics onto them? 
It was an, a unique song. It was very memorable. It still is. I mean, I guess it's in the top five of uh, opening <laughs> rock and roll licks. When we listen back to the final mix, I mean, we had shivers. And at the time, were you able to make a deal where you collected all the royalties for, for conjuring up that magic? Well, no, I got artist royalties. In those days, it was quite small. How well exactly did that song do? Well, back then, they usually measured things by singles, and it, and it sold over $2 million. And it was number one or in the top five all over the world. It's been in... Uh, 65 movies and over a couple dozen uh, commercials on TV. And uh, it's been used in a lot of TV shows. It's been remarkable, really. Who, who knew, as they say, that uh, a song could last that long? Well, what sort of reaction did you get from your family and friends? Well, my direct family didn't understand it, of course. And But uh, when it became a hit, uh, how could they? How could they put me down? Yeah, fair, fair enough. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to definitely ask my people to send me to Australia. Norman Greenbaum, there. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Now, the mighty veteran rocker Alice Cooper needs little introduction. He's got hundreds of stories to tell from decades of being in the music business, and they're all equally entertaining. I managed to get Alice on the other end of the phone just as he was dropping his latest album, Detroit Stories. It's a compilation of songs dedicated to his home city of Detroit, where he launched his successful career back in the early 70s. Alice met the other founding members of the Alice Cooper group in Phoenix, Arizona, where his family moved when he was just 12. The high school track star and his bandmates were sharing a farmhouse on the outskirts of the city when they recorded their breakthrough single, I'm 18. Today, the 73-year-old rocker lives in Paradise Valley in Arizona, but has always harboured a soft spot for the city that made him a star. Alice Cooper, welcome to A Breath of Fresh Air. Great to have you on board. Thank you. Tell me about the new album. One of the reasons we wrote this, this album about Detroit was because it's the hard rock capital. It's where all the hard rock bands came out of. If ACDC would have been American, they would have come out of Detroit. When we decided to do this album, Detroit Stories, the whole idea was, let's not just do an album about Detroit, let's go there, let's write the songs there, let's record them there, and let's use all Detroit players. And on top of it, it's my hometown. I was born there. So that must have felt really special for you. You know, and a lot of people think it's um, it was t nostalgia, and it really wasn't at all. So did you get the result you were after? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was one of those albums that, to us, was really fun to write. Uh -huh. Detroit people wake up in the morning, put on their Levi's, their boots, and their black leather jacket and go to, go to work and go to school. So that's the Midwest, you know, rock and roll mentality there. They hate soft rock in Detroit. Do they? <laughs> so they must have been pretty pleased that you were going to all of this effort in Detroit. Well, I'll tell you exactly how, how we ended up in Detroit. It was that L.A. had had enough of us. We, we, we were too scary for L.A. <laughs> you know, everybody was at that period of time was doing LSD, and we would come on stage and scare the hell out of them. Everybody else was groovy, and the doors were cool, and Buffalo Springfield and all those bands. And then Alice Cooper would come on and they would run for the doors because we scared them, you know. <laughs> well, we said the first place that gives us a standing ovation is where we're going to move. And we were louder and more in their face than anybody. And they loved us. Then they found out I was from Detroit. So we were immediately the long lost brothers. And that's where Love It to Death and, you know, Killer and those albums, uh, 18, you know, all those songs came out in Detroit.
did you move away? All of a sudden, 18 broke and became a national hit. Then we had to tour all over the United States and promote that album. So we kind of outgrew Detroit at that point. We were doing two albums a year and touring the rest of the time. So we really didn't live anywhere. We lived on the road. Alice, the first song that you've released as a taste of this album is called Rock and Roll. You haven't chosen that song by accident, have you? Well, the, the thing about that was I knew Lou Reed back in the day when the Velvet Underground. And I said, if we took this song to Detroit and put a V8 engine in it and souped it up and put Joe Bonamassa on it, this song is going to be a rocking song. And all we did was just brought it to life again. Jenny said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happening at all. Every time she turned on the radio, there was nothing going down at all. Couldn't believe what she heard at all She started shaking to that fine, fine music And her life was saved by rock and roll Despite all the amputations You could just dance to that rock and roll station And it was alright It's alright oh, It was alright is a big departure for you, isn't it? Because it's not at all commercially focused. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I don't know what commercial is anymore. If Beyonce is commercial, we're certainly never going to have another hit. I can imagine you get pretty tired of singing all of those old favourites. Which one do you still enjoy performing? I'll, I'll tell you what it is, Sandy, is the weird thing about if you've been around for 28 albums and you've had a lot of hits, I would say half the show is songs you have to do. Right. Rehearsing those songs is a drag because I've done those songs so many times. I have the best touring band of anybody out there. But when you get them on stage and all of a sudden the beginning of 18 happens or Billion Dollar Babies or Poison, the audience goes crazy every night and you can't possibly get bored with that song at that point. Your cruel device, your blood like I
think, oh man, how, how many times can I do this song? You have to remember that audience hasn't heard you do that song in three or four years. They can't wait to hear that song. I remember one time I was backstage and I heard Jimi Hendrix. He kind of turns to me and he goes, if I have to play Foxy Lady one more time, I'm going to go crazy. And I'm sitting there going, if I was in that audience, if he didn't play Foxy Lady, I would be really mad. That's right. And that's great that you do think like that, that you're happy to give the audience what they want and they're happy to take everything that you've got to give them. I have never gotten bored with rock and roll. So I'm going to keep making albums till I can't make albums. And I'm going to keep touring till I can't tour anymore. Great. Can't wait to see you back in Australia, Alice. Look after yourself till then. Thanks a million for talking with me today. Well, thank you, Sandy. It's really good to talk to you. And hopefully we'll be over there in in Australia as soon as we possibly can. That was the rocker Alice Cooper. And after the break, we chat to Talking Heads, Chris France. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Raise your hand if you were a fan of the average white band. Did you know they're still active today and have got new music out? Take a listen. state of mind from their latest four-song EP called The Blue Workshop. Roger Ball was a founding member of the original band back in the early 70s. I want you to walk me down memory lane a little bit, Roger, because I was a huge fan of the average white band and I, like I think everybody else in the world at the time, thought that the average white band was a band of black guys, but you're not. We were... Little white Scotsman, really. It's it's funny because, uh, as you said, everybody thought we were a black group. In fact, the first couple of gigs we did, you know, they'd say average white band and we'd come on stage and then there would be this, ooh, from the crowd. <laughs> what the hell was going on? Because the first few gigs were actually mostly a black audience. It was quite strange at the at the beginning <laughs> probably a couple of years before uh, we started to get a completely mixed audience that was quite a compliment from the, the black community that they would go for it hoop line and sinker you definitely had a black sound though didn't you how did that sound come about there was no real intent to copy the funk sound it, that was what came naturally to us You formed in 1972 and you found yourselves quickly moving to the US. certainly did prove successful, didn't it? In 1974, you had that magnificent white album. We released the album without any uh, thought of what the single would be. But I remember uh, we were in the States and the rep from the record company said, you know, they started playing uh, Pick Up the Pieces a lot which was a surprise to everybody because it was an instrumental thing and uh, not what you would normally associate with being a big single.
God, I, I must have played that song a, a thousand million times by now. And of course, you wrote that song, didn't you? I did. Uh, it came about, uh, again, we were rehearsing in LA. To be honest, it was Hamish came up with this uh, line that goes. I had a cassette of this little groove. I don't think I even had a piano at the time. I just had some manuscript paper and wrote the main theme. And uh, you know, the next day, brought it into the band rehearsal and say, what do you think of this, guys? And yeah, that's okay. Yeah, good, we'll do that. And that's history now, of course. You'd been a pretty well-known session musician in London ahead of that, hadn't you? You'd played for people like Badfinger and Kiki D and Elton John, Mama Cass, Brian Ferry, and lots of others as well. So you weren't entirely unknown, were you? Well, I wouldn't say I was entirely known either. I was very fortunate. I came down to London in 1970, and uh, there was a lot of musicians there looking for work, studio work and whatnot. I, I don't know why. I got extremely lucky. You know, just wrote some arrangements for Johnny Nash. I can see clearly now. If you listen very, very hard, you can hear a, bar- a baritone saxophone in the, in the bridge. I can see clearly now the rain is gone I can see all obstacles in my way Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind It's gonna be on stage with the the late great Marvin Gaye. When we got a little bit more successful, we were doing gigs in LA and Marvin had, uh, you know, at that point, had heard of us like everybody else. And he came down to the gig and then we played Grapevine and uh, Marvin came up on stage and sang with us. Oh my God, that was fantastic. Amazing. Why did you call yourselves Average White Band in the first place? It was a phrase that was going around at the time. It's too hot for the average white man. It was a friend of ours who'd come up with, eventually he said, oh, it's going to be uh, better than the average white band. And somebody thought that sounded good. So on we went. You had a few huge hits. Which ones did you like best? Work to Do was a good one. It's an Isley Brothers song, and I did actually write an arrangement for that and got some horns in. What happened that caused the split? Had Average White Band just run its course? Well, I I guess that's what we thought at the time. We thought that was it, you know, but in retrospect, as you probably know, the Average White Band is still going. Do you miss the heady days of Average White Band in the 70s? 
Oh, I'd say yes, yeah, to a certain degree. But you know, there's all phases to life. So I mean, I enjoyed the touring and the uh, being famous, I suppose, and the uh, critical acclaim was a lot of fun. Roger, thank you for all that fantastic music from the Average White Band. As my younger teenage self, we just loved it. It was a great era of the '70s, and Average White Band made it all the more special. Well, it was a great pleasure. Uh, playing that stuff and being part of it and uh, I've enjoyed your interview. Very fun. The Average White Band's Roger Ball. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Now the band Talking Heads came out of New York City in 1975. It was composed of Scottish-born David Byrne, Tina Weymouth, Jerry Harrison and Chris France on drums. Talking Heads was one of the most critically acclaimed groups of the 80s. I caught up with Chris France following the release of his memoir. The fact that David Byrne hasn't even set his eyes on it is testament to the fact that the two had a very bitter fallout. I asked Chris why he decided to write the book now. I got to the point where I was 69 years old and I thought, you better get going on this. If you're going to do it, let's do it now. I felt like Talking Heads was an amazing story. And there were uh, things about Talking Heads that were kind of important that that hadn't been told yet. I was up for telling them, so I did. What was really eating at you that you had to get out? And I know that there's no love loss between you and frontman David Byrne, right? Well, you know, in fact, I do love David. I, I still have strong feelings about him as, as a collaborator. You know, we did great work together. As a friend, I, I feel somewhat let down, <laughs> to put it mildly. Why? Well, just his refusal to work with the band that made him famous. It seems sometimes to me that he'll work with anybody except us. I mean, I'm laughing about that because it it sounds like a joke, but it's actually not a joke. He's chosen many other people to work with despite fantastic offers. He just doesn't want to do it with us. He prefers to do it on his own. So you actually founded the band and brought David into it. And you say that the band made him famous. He, of course, would tell it the other way and say that he made the band famous, wouldn't he? I suppose he would, yeah. And that's the way he thinks, yes. I think he always had a very strong desire to be famous. I heard him say once how one day Talking Heads would be famous and that we would be philanthropic and we would set up a foundation to help young artists. And I thought, oh, how wonderful. But then his friend said, you don't really mean that, do you, David? And he said, no, I don't. When I get famous, I'm going to grab and grab and grab. Those were the words he used. Wow. The book just wasn't a tell-all of the way that David Byrne worked, was it? No. Uh, David Byrne is one of many interesting characters in the book. Uh, I would say the real hero of my book is Tina Weymouth. She's really something. Without her, Talking Heads would not have been the same type of band at all. Of all the songs that Talking Heads had, which would you say is your most liked? There are so many favourites to choose from, Sandy. I'll start with the first song we ever wrote, which is Psycho Killer. That's a song that Tina and I were working. It was our senior year at the Rhode Island School of Design, and we were preparing a painting show that we would have at the at the end of the school year. And there's a knock on the door, and it was David. He came into our studio. He had his little acoustic guitar. He said, I, I, I've started this song, and I... I want to know what you think of it and if you would help me finish it. So he sat down and he played the first verse. I can't seem to face up the, to the facts. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax. I can't sleep because my bed's on fire. Don't touch me. I'm a real live wire. And I thought, whoa, that sounds great. And then it, then the chorus came in. Psycho killer, qu'est-ce fa, 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 fa. I loved it. David said, I think the, the middle should uh, section of the song should be in a foreign language. And uh, I said, well, you know, Tina's fluent in French. She could write, write this in French. And he said, great. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax. I can't sleep cause my bed's on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real live wire 
be written by David, but more often than not, that David would come to us with a germ of a song or an idea. And there's a lot of things that happen in a band that you don't see on the stage. Like what? Like supporting each other or not supporting each other. David was very, very important to Talking Heads, but so was Tina and so was Jerry and so was I. So no real hope that Talking Heads could ever reform and, and do a reunion tour at all? Well, I never say never, but it doesn't look good. David's just not interested. the ins and outs of Talking Heads, pick up a copy of Chris France's book called Remain in Love. It's a great read about Talking Heads as well as the history of the Tom Tom Club. And Chris dedicates chapters to his loving and enduring relationship with Tina Weymouth. Up next, we chat to Paul Williams. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks again for your company. It's great to have you here. Now, like many of you, I was raised on the music of composer and singer Paul Williams. He's an Oscar, Grammy and Golden Globe winning Hall of Fame songwriter, known for writing and co-writing many popular songs, performed by a number of acts in the 70s, including Helen Reddy's You and Me Against the World, David Bowie's Fill Your Heart and this one by Three Dog Night, an old-fashioned love song. Just to know a love song playing on the radio And wrapped around the music is the sound of someone promising they'll never go and feelings that we've come to know. Old-fashioned love song 
I still love that song. Paul Williams is also known for writing the score and lyrics from the Muppet movie. Also writing the lyrics to the number one chart-topping song, Evergreen, the love theme from the Barbara Streisand film, A Star Is Born, for which he won a Grammy. Paul also wrote the lyrics to the opening theme for the TV show, The Love Boat. What a career the 82-year-old has enjoyed, and he still shows no signs of slowing down. So I feel like a tired 34. I just, I, I, I cannot imagine that number. Is, and, and, and I tell everyone, my wife, Mariana, is always going, why do you t- always tell people you're ready? I said, because, I mean, I'm 30 years sober, so at 49, I was almost dead. I think it's a new time and a new day, and if we take care of ourselves and the big amigo is willing, we can, you know, I want three digits on my driver's license. You've been known for so many fantastic projects. I remember growing up with you through the 70s with Old Fashioned Love Song, with The Carpenters We Only Just Begun, with Rainy Days and Mondays. Talking to myself and feeling old Sometimes I'd like to quit Nothing ever seems to fit Hanging around Nothing to do but frown Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Of all of those 70s songs that you wrote, which was your favourite? In the 70s when I was having all that success and, and, and having, you know, way too much, much fun, the fact is that, that I was deeply, deeply devoted to the work I was doing. When I started hitting the road, was out on the road, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm spending all that time out, out there and getting all kinds of attention, you know, it's, it's amazing what your ego can do for you. It can, all of a sudden, I'm Mr. Big Shot here and all. You were on fire. Some of the biggest things in my life I didn't want to do. You know, Roger Nichols and I were were riding together, but in the midst of this, there was a lyricist named Tony Asher. And Tony Asher had a job riding a bank commercial. And he went skiing and he broke the hand that he rides with. He called Roger and he said, you know, Roger, I'm on pain pills. I'm all loopy. I'm supposed to do this commercial. I recommended you and Paul for it. And I said to Roger, I don't want to ride a bank commercial. He said, you know, well, there's a, there's a creative fee. I said, let's write this bank commercial. <laughs> we wrote the bank commercial. It was, you know, all of a sudden then with me singing it, it, the commercial was airing. We expanded into a full song. I never believed that, you know, just in case anybody wanted it. But uh, I got a call from, from Richard Carpenter who said, is there a full song? And we went, yeah, of course, that was We've Only Just Begun. And that changed my life. We've only just begun to live. and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way We've only begun Before the rising sun We fly So many roads to choose We start out sudden you know huge success and to this day people come out to me and say you know we got married we've only just begun or, or the evergreen same thing love soft as an easy chair love fresh as the Kenny Asher, we wrote You and Me Against the World together. We wrote the songs for the Muffin movie, Rainbow Connection. Why are there so many 
Songs about rainbows And what's on the other side Rainbows are visions But only illusions And rainbows have nothing to hide was in huge demand in those days for his skills as a lyricist and composer. But as has been the case with many a star, fame and fortune aren't easy to navigate. And right at his peak, Paul let it all go to his head and he nearly lost everything. You spend so much time lying about what you're doing with the money and where, where are you going and what are you yeah. doing up for the night and all. But I misplaced the 80s. And, you know, I, I joke that you know you're an alcoholic when you misplace a decade which is essentially what I did. I had left my wife and children for a 22-year-old psych major who said, you know, I love you too much to watch you die. And I said, oh, that's amazing. I was just thinking of going to, to rehab, you know, which was, of course, a lie. And I, and I, I did rehab for her. I, I think I stayed sober seven months. And so within seven months, I was, I, was, I was drinking and using again. But in 1989, I went to Oklahoma City and, and did a concert where I had a full-tilt psychotic meltdown. The staff of life for me at that time was Stolich Naya Vodka and, and cocaine. And, and I found out years later that the promoter of the gig, who was just amazed at watching me being tossed around by invisible monsters that nobody could see but me, and he was seven years sober, what did you do? And he said, well, I called my sponsor. And in a blackout, 10 days later, I called a doctor and said I wanted to get sober. The big change came right after I got so, and you know, incidentally, the, the songs that were hits and all, I would stay up all night trying to write and get a good night's sleep and I'd get up and look at pages and pages of gibberish and, you know, in sobriety, I would sit there and write what became the song. So I wrote in spite of the drugs, not because of it. What changed for you that you sought recovery? A big change for me was about a year after I got sober, I was hired to write the words and music to the Muppet Christmas Carol. And it's a, think about that, you know, just that, you know, the, the remarkable coincidental element of that. It's a, it's a story about a lost soul who has had a spiritual awakening, Scrooge. And I think that to, to be able to write th- that story, at the, having just begun that process in my own life was really remarkable. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. And there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed, is the one that we call Scrooge. Yeah. Unkind as any, and the wrath of many, this is Ebenezer Scrooge. You're at home listening and you're wondering about where the hell to go, pick up your phone book if you have one and check out the, right at the very front, you'll find them in the A's. And the fact is that they gave me my life back and, and, and a way to live my life, a way to, to live authentically. So I was so thrilled, you know, and part of what changed in my thinking was that no is a gift. You know, I, I didn't see myself as having lost a career. I gained a life. And, and you know, we did a, a, did a, 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 a documentary in 2009 called Paul Williams Still Alive that was done. And, and it's very clear if you watch that, that the last thing I, I was really pursuing at that point was more time on camera. You know, I didn't. I think I became as addicted to showing off as, as, uh, as anything else. Showing off instead of showing up. What's remarkable is is that just, you know, one day at a time, all of a sudden the phone would ring. And uh, I was supposed to do a, a movie in New Zealand that, that, was, that was recast with the guy they really wanted. And I immediately thought, oh, that's wonderful. It's in, because no is a gift. What's coming? And the next day I got a phone call and was asked to come to Nashville for a, 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 an event called Tin Van South. And I went there and I went, oh, my God. And I was at this point, I was about seven years sober. And I went, oh, there's something in the water here. Because all of a sudden, and maybe it was ego. I just wanted to write again as well. I started writing. I met a guy named John Besner. We wrote a song called You're Gone, which was the first song I'd collaborated on, you know, after getting sober. And uh, sitting down, right, sharing bad ideas with him, we wrote a song called You're Gone. It was the number one record. You knew all my lines. And you knew all my tricks You knew how to heal that pain No medicine can fix And I bless the day I met you And I thank God that he let you Lay beside me for a moment that lives on And the good news is I'm better for 
spent together The bad news is you're gone All of a sudden I was back in the community and, and loving it, loving it. But the part of my home that I carry with me is my, is my recovery. Since those days, Paul has reached new heights. Today, he's still avidly writing songs. The Grammy Award winner wrote two for Daft Punk's 2013 album and is constantly being approached by young artists for help. It just pours out of me. It, re it really does. And, you know, I've been writing with a group called Portugal The Man. We have the new single called Who's Gonna Stop Me? Who's gonna stop me when there's no one there to stop me but me? in my life and at this age and to have that to have I have a, a documentary film which is is called Freak Power the ballad or the bomb and it's about Hunter Thompson running for sheriff in, in Aspen back in the, in the late 60s when the world was upside down and the, the police were being aggressive with all the hippies so Gustavo uh, Santo Olaya and I wrote a song called The Valley of Last Resort I wrote the lyrics when the ghost of a sweet raving beast connects with your soul when the thought of the unfinished fight won't let you go when injustice still feeds on the frail we all know that the power of freak needs to speak to the world once more the documentary is amazing because there's so many comparatives between what was going on in Aspen in the late 60s with the hippies and, and all. And there's so, much, there's so much going on in this country right now that is so similar. Paul Williams, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute thrill for me to speak with you. My great pleasure, Sandy. I appreciate it. And thanks so much for your company today. I hope you've enjoyed the first of this limited special series. Do you have a favourite guest that you'd like to see interviewed? If so, just shout out. Send me a message through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au, and I'll do my very best to get it happening for you. Maybe you could even come onto the show and say hi. Take care of yourself, won't you, until we meet again. I can't wait to be back with you same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day, oh baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.